Welcome to this latest edition of the Payments Unpacked podcast. In today's podcast, I'm going to share with you 300 years when nothing happened in banking, followed by 30 years of banking and payment innovation that centred around the humble check. We're then going to look at 30 years where the building blocks for digital payments were put in place. And then that will conclude when we're ready for real-time 2.0 for payments in the United Kingdom. As many of you would know, I've spent a long time in payments, but my time in payments is a mere blink in the eye of payments history. I want to tell you a story today of 300 years of banking, followed by two chunks of 30 years, which has led us to the point where we're now in a real-time payments world. Payments go back an awfully long way. We've got coins being used as payment in Lydia in 64 BC. We've got paper money being used in China in AD 806. As an aside, it took till 1668 for paper money to get to Europe when it was pitched up in Sweden and the banker started issuing paper money, ultimately ending in disaster because he is pr- prosecuted for fraud, a sentence to death which was later communicated, uh, commuted to uh, to life in prison. Um, but let me get back to the story of payments. By AD 57, the Romans were using IOUs as a form of payment. We see that from a bamboo tablet uncovered when some digging was going on in London. By 1100, the Knights Templars were issuing letter of credits to pilgrims en route to Jerusalem so they could fund their journey there and back without having to carry loads and loads of money with them. By the 13th century, letter of credits were being used. These moved into bills of exchange. They facilitated international trade. It started in Italy with the world's oldest bank or the world's first bank, Monte di Passi di Siena. And by the 17th century, we see these letter of um, credit being used in Italy, moving to international trade, moving forward to France and into the UK. And there we have our first form of a bank with, with easy deposit, a bit of lending, and some bills of exchange. By 17th century, those bills of exchange had converted into drawn notes where you could pitch up at your bank, present that note, and receive some cash as a drawdown, and eventually they transformed into the thing today that we would recognise as a cheque. Indeed, by 1659, people were handwriting cheques, as an example of that in the Bank of England archive. By 1757, we had a printed form of a cheque where, in effect, you filled in the blanks. And actually, if you look at both the handwritten cheque from 1659, the printed cheque from 1757, you'll recognise them as cheques if you're old enough to have seen or used or handled a cheque. By 1770, we saw a clearing exchange in London. It was used in the Italian coffee shops in Lombard Street. People were pitching up and exchanging their cheques. At 1770, the first clearing in the United Kingdom. It took a further 200 years to get to the next clearing with backs in 1968. And that 300 year period takes us to about 1960. And that really was banking in that 300 year period um, through, to, through to 1960, when frankly banking looked and felt like Captain Mannering in Swallows Bank at the end of his career. There was a bit of coin traffic going on, there was a bit of checks being cashed, there was a bit of deposit going on, there was a bit of lending. Some may say they were the Halasian days of stuffy banking. But in fact, that's our first 300 years from Monte de Pasha de Siena to Captain Mannering and Swallows Bank in 1960 at the end of his career. That was banking. 
There then was a period of 30 years, and these 30 years are from 1960 to 1990, where we saw the first phase of real payments innovation. In 1967, we saw the first ATM operating and launched in the United Kingdom at Barclays Bank in Enfield. It was used by TV personality of the day, Reg Varney. He was the guy who used to put the card in uh, and got some money out, the first person to use an ATM. We see those early uses of ATM using cards that were mildly radioactive. We see the credit card being launched by Barclay Card or Barclays in the United Kingdom around about the same time. But those two pieces of innovation, in effect, were just stolen from the United, from the United States. By 1968, we had backs as the clearing you would know today as the processor of direct debits and direct credits. But really in those days, from the late 60s right through the 70s, by volume and value and impact in terms of payment innovation, backs made hardly a pinprick on payments at that time. Because during this period of 1960 to 1990, all innovation, all payments innovation, happened around the paper cheque. If you can imagine that cheque, you may have seen one before, the form of the cheque was, uh, was very standardised. We had an electronically readable mica line, a magnetic ink character recognition line at the bottom that had your cheque number, your sort code, your account number, and a blank space where actually the bank would have overlaid the value of the amount of the cheque. And that, by doing that, it allowed the cheque to be processed automatically with, with more and more automation because the volumes were too big by this time of cheques to process them manually. So we had to invent these massive reader sorters, massive reader sorters where you fed the cheques in one end and they, the cheques went through the, the machine and spat out in different trays depending on what the, che the bank that the uh, cheque was drawn on. The problem with that is there was a finite number of trays. So once you'd filled, allocated all the trays, you couldn't have any new banks joining the clearing, which became a t an issue in time. But of course, originally cheques and commerce but things happened in your local town, your local village, maybe the next town. You were known or you got a reputation for bouncing cheques. As people started to do commerce and use cheques and farther and wide, how did, I, how did the, the shopkeeper know or the company know that I was good for my money when I wrote this cheque, that they would then release the good and service that I wanted to buy? Well, of course, that was very difficult, became an issue. So the banks introduced a guarantee card. Uh, that guarantee card initially on card, but then it was on, on plastic, uh, went alongside your cheque and it said my bank was going to be, was, would make me good for the money of a cheque to a certain limit. Now that limit is started low. We had limits of £50, eventually went to 100 Some banks went to 250 right at the end of the guarantee scheme. But in effect, that was the way of guaranteeing the cheque. The problem is then people started forging the guarantee card itself. So they had to think about making the, innovating the guarantee card to make the guarantee card a, a much more tr uh, dependable item. So they thought about putting holograms in. The original idea was to put holograms of the people, of the person, on that particular card. That would be pretty good. That would have given us a national identity. Clearly that was far too difficult. So the banks put a hologram of Shakespeare on the card. We also had an issue of checks in, the, in terms of the cost of processing checks and ad valorem charges. So to get round that, the idea and the concept of a stamp duty, of putting up a stick in a penny stamp on that check meant that you could go through and that check would be processed at a fixed fee. So again, very, very simple innovation. Now, so we see payments innovation all around the check, all around making the king of the paper check to make payments. And that led us to peak check in 1990 when about 4 billion checks were processed per annum in the United Kingdom. 
Having innovated in payments around the paper instrument, the cheque for those 30 years of 1960 to 1990, we enter into a second 30-year period. That second 30-year period is from 1990 to 2020. And we see in this period five key developments that actually have given us the bedrock of the success of digital payments going forward. Let me run through those five key developments first with you. The first is that consumer behaviours were starting to move from analogue to digital. The trend of moving from all cash to less cash in our society was starting. And that was sort of a little bit about people using a card, an ATM card to draw some money out. We saw the introduction of debit cards. Uh, We saw some sort of beginning instruments that allow people to pay by direct debit and direct credit to start moving their money and paying for the goods and services they consume in a much more digital way. We also saw the ability to start up banking without going to a bank or to a branch by doing things online. Firstly, through a very primitive interface into the television, with, via the television with Bank of Scotland. Second, in terms of online banking. And then a real move into mobile banking, which was a much more immersive experience. We saw the paper banker's payment, the way of processing good money in the City of London for settlement deals, move to CHAPS and real-time growth settlement. We see the UK's population adopting direct debit and direct credit for the payment of the bills, those regular bills, mortgages, utility bills, car insurance, uh, and also to receive their money via direct credit for, uh, for their salary. So we started to see people uh, taking cash out of the system and putting it in their bank account and spending it from in that way digitally rather than taking cash out and going spending that. And I did mention a few moments ago, but the biggest transformation is that that check guarantee card transforming itself into an ATM card where you could withdraw money for an ATM and then transforming itself again into a new life of a debit card where you can bypass the check, bypass the ATM, bypass the cash and present your debit card at a point of sale for those goods and services that you want to buy. So that period of 1990 to 2020 was a key period for banking in the UK where as a population we started to accept the role of digital payments. And having looked at that period of 300 years where not much happened in banking, having looked at the first period of 30 years where we saw innovation around a paper instrument and finalising with another 30 years of the bedrock between 1990 and 2020 of, of, in, of encouraging folk to pay for the goods and services they consume electronically, we get into this period that I've called the real-time world. And there are three aspects of this real-time world that are fundamentally changing the way we pay and how we pay and who we pay. The first of those three things is our real-time payment rails. Now, I accept it was the late 2000 we got real-time payments in the form of a near real-time system called Faster Payments. But it's really only in this last period of time that we've seen the significant growth of Faster Payments, but the significant application of new use cases that were in effect stretching that original Faster Payments proposition as we look forward to faster payments under a new payment architecture. But in reality, we've got a system here that is near real time, but it looks, it feels, it smells like real time payments. I was out in the Middle East talking to a central banker a little while ago, and they looked with starry, misty eyes to the United Kingdom and said, you have, they said, Mike, you've got the granddaddy of faster pay, uh, faster of real time payments in the United Kingdom. We were seen to be the industry leader 
in that respect. So we've got those real-time payment rails. The second aspect is we've got a real-time switch. Now, it was Ed Balls 11 years ago when he was Chancellor said, you're more likely to get divorced than you are to switch your bank account. What a terrible thing to say, but the reality was it was absolutely true. And 10 years ago, we saw the launch of current account switching in the UK, where guaranteed seven days you can move your account from one bank to another bank. You can fall out of love with bank A and fall in love with bank B and move all your, all your money and your payment traffic to that bank. I'll call that a real-time switch. It's seven days, it's seamless, it, it's hassle-free. But what it does, it allows you to choose your banker based on the goods that the service they provide and the service they provide and how they support payments for you. And you're not locked in with your old bank who might be substandard, but it's just far too difficult to move. The third aspect of, of real-time, I would call real-time overlays. You know, we're in a situation now, pre-new payment architecture, but in the current faster payments environment particularly, where we have got confirmation of payee. Confirmation of payee providing that antivirus when we're making a payment. That we're, Before we inject a payment into the system, we can have trust and confidence that the person we think we're sending it to is indeed the person that we can send it to. We can have a payment firewall in the terms of request to pay, that we know that when we receive an instruction or somebody wanting money from us under a request to pay, we know that we can confidently respond to that payment without having to think, well, really, should, really, should I be clicking on a link in an SMS? Should I accept this email? Surely my bank tells me not to do that. Why would this be okay? So we can have a firewall called request to pay. We've been had the privilege, and it was my privilege to be the custodian for over a decade of direct debit, a fantastic collection, fantastic pool product, but we're seeing the emergence of variable reoccurring payments in the me-to-me -me sweeping environment, and then whatever we call it, moving to a more commercial, a wider application of variable reoccurring payments. And of course, we've got open banking account to account payments where you can bypass the card and actually be able to have a seamless experience to be on a site, to jump into your bank, make that payment and jump bank and complete the purchase. So I think this period we are in now, which gives us the, which builds on the history of those other two 30 year periods, but are providing us the bedrock to move forward, are the real time rails that we enjoy in faster payments, are the real time switch that we enjoy in current account switching and are the real time overlays that we enjoy that sit above the payment rails. And that's where we've landed, and that's where we are in 2023. For 300 years, not really much happened in banking. For 30 years, we only saw innovation in paper. And for the last 30, or 30 years to 2020, we saw the building blocks that makes us ready for real-time 2.0 in the UK. So this leads us to the current situation where we are transforming how we enable and empower our customers to choose and be in control of who they pay, how they pay, and when they pay. We're in a situation where digital payments have enabled people to have trust and confidence in, ha in when they're making digital payments. And that's absolutely vital in a less cash and as we move to a more cashless society. If folk don't have trust and confidence, we will not be able to take the next step 
into digital payments. And whilst that transformation about who we pay, how we pay and when we pay, why the building of trust and confidence is absolutely vital, we have to be mindful that everything is not rosy in our payments world. And faster payments or a faster transaction can often lead to a faster fraud. We have to do all we can, whether it's through reimbursement, whether it's through confirmation of pay, whether it's through request to pay, whether it's through AI and profiling, whether it's through data within an overall transaction, we have to do all we can to ensure that our payments paradise does not become a gangster's paradise. This leads me to, co to conclude with three asks. And these three asks are, are, are a sort of a subset an overall, of an overall payments manifesto that I've put together. But let me share those three sub-asks from my manifesto with you today. The first is that we so desperately need a new payment architecture. To an extent, I don't care whether it's a new payment architecture with a capital N, a capital P and a capital A, or a lowercase MPA. What we absolutely need are payment rails fit for the 2020s and the 2030s. The second, we've got to focus on the account-to-account -account experience in the UK. You know, how open banking, account-to-account -account payments will really become the payment method of choice. How faster payments will evolve to give us more than just a sip, a sop and a faster day, a future day payment, but we'll think about different flavours of payments for different use cases. The ability to have some form of guarantee, protection within a payment. The ability to have a payment that is absolutely irrevocable and other flavours of payments that sit suit different use cases. We need to think about direct debit and the future of direct debit. What the most amazing product it was. I was a privilege to have run that product, uh, that scheme for so long. But we're in a situation now where we've got to think about how direct debits will move into what I call direct debit 3.0. And while we're doing that, we need to think about the consumer guarantee, the clearing cycle, the data set, the purpose of the overall product. But in addition, we need to think about a direct debit sandwich, where direct debit we know today is the bread. And in the middle, we're actually using the jam of variable recurring payments and the peanut butter of real-time uh, uh, request to pay. That we end up with a direct debit sandwich or direct debit 3.0 that is fe feature rich and fit for a modern day. And as part of both that, that direct debit piece and the faster payments piece, we've got to understand how we move those four and a half direct debit, four and a half billion direct debit payments and probably six and a half billion if you add direct credit in together. And we move that from a batch environment to a true 1.1. So we've dealt with the rails. We've got focus on the particular payments and the flexibility in those payments. We have absolutely got to have a very strong industry toolbox to thwart the fraudster. You know, clearly confirmation of pay is a vital part of that. It's the antivirus uh, for payments. And it's absolutely vital as we build trust and confidence in digital payments. But when we think about things like confirmation of pay and the 450 institutions that finally will have to have confirmation of pay by next year, we use that as an example of innovation about do we adopt confirmation of pay just because the regulator, the PSR, has told us we must, or do we adopt confirmation of payee to serve our customers well and thwart the fraudster? Because that's absolutely true for confirmation of payee, but actually it's a principle for all payment innovation. Do we just wait for the regulator to bang us on the head and tell us to do something? Or do we think about how as a community and then as individual institutions, we can truly innovate at speed in creative ways to the benefit of our customers and to the detriment of the fraudster.
I shared a version of this podcast uh, to a group of people in Manchester and a group of people in Birmingham earlier this week. It was a pleasure to do that. The, the uh, events were organised by uh, a company called SurePay, a confirmation of pay provider in the United Kingdom. And SurePay, I call you out. You are my antivirus to my fraudulent and misdirected payments. This is a Payments Unpacked podcast. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe. If payments are your thing, why not subscribe to the Payments Unpacked newsletter? It's free and you can subscribe at payments-unpacked.com. Thanks for listening.